When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hello and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am your host, Movie Mike, and today I want to share with you my top 10 most influential Disney films of my childhood. The movies that left the biggest impression on me changed my life altogether. And that's because in the movie review, we'll be talking about The Little Mermaid, which is a remake of the animated classic, but live action. And if you listen to this podcast, you know how I feel about Disney live action right now. And then in the trailer park, the first look at Killers of the Flower Moon which is already being described as Leonardo DiCaprio's best movie ever, and I cannot wait. So thank you for being subscribed. Thank you for listening every single week. Shout out to the Monday Morning Movie Crew. And now, let's talk movies. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. My goal today is to take you on a trip down memory lane by way of all the Disney movies that shaped and influenced my childhood. I was born in 1991, so I'll be looking at every movie released before then and up to 2004. So everything from when I was a baby to when I was 13 years old is up for consideration. That's just the cutoff date I decided to give myself, so nothing after 2004 will be on my list. So before I get into my top 10, let's just talk about the history of Disney, which dates all the way back to the 1920s. They have these different eras. So much like Taylor Swift right now is making a big deal about eras, Disney has had eras when it comes to their animated movies, although my list will have both live action and animated movies. So it goes back all the way to 1928, which is known as the golden age from 28 to 1942. This is what started it all. Mickey Mouse in his infant stage as Steamboat Willie in 1928. It also includes the first Disney princess ever, Snow White and the Seven Doors, which came out in 1937. It was the first full-length animated movie ever from Disney. And then, of course, you have Fantasia in 1940. So this is really where Disney became Disney. After that, you had the package films era from 1943 to 1949. 
1939. A lot of these movies were impacted by World War II, so nothing really significant or noteworthy came out in this era. That was followed up by the Silver Age from the 1950s to the early 1960s. This is where you got movies like Cinderella in 1950, Sleeping Beauty in 1959, and the 101 Dalmatians from 1961. This is really where they started to become known, not just for their animation, but for their storytelling, and they were really starting to push the envelope on what hand-drawn animation could be. But after that Silver Age, you got hit with the Dark Age, which is also known as the Xerox era, where they got a little bit lazy with their animation. So you would start to notice a lot of reused characters, reused backgrounds. And this era is always credited as Disney trying to recapture their earlier era and falling flat. But you still had some bangers in this Dark Age. You had the Aristocrats, the Fox and the Hound from 1981. And one of my top 10 most influential movies came out of this era. So I don't think this era was terrible, but it was followed by the greatest era of all time. So it often just gets forgotten because after this from 1989 to 1999 you have the renaissance era which i also call the golden age of disney with movies like the little mermaid in 1989 beauty and the beast in 1991 the lion king in 94 and the last big hit of this era was mulan in 1998 this was it this was disney without this era it would be nothing like we know today and some would say they are still trying to recreate this renaissance era because after that you had the post renaissance era from 2000 to 2008. You had movies like The Emperor's New Groove, Lilo and Stitch, The Princess and the Frog, which was the last hand-drawn 2D animated movie ever released in theaters by Disney. So it was almost like the end of my childhood whenever they stopped doing 2D animated movies. I just love the warmth of 2D animation. I love the fact that you had artists hand-drawing every single frame and every single movement that is the magic of filmmaking to me when it comes to Disney. I think it would be so incredibly impactful if they put away all of their animation tools for a second and made a film that went back to the basics of hand drawing everything. I think that would be a really noteworthy film to be made in the 2020s. After the post-Renaissance era, you had the revival era, which kicked off in 2009. This is where you had a bunch of big ones like Frozen in 2013, Moana in 2016, Zootopia in 2016. It was the first time we really had memorable Disney movies since that golden age. I would say we are in the remake era of Disney now because everything from the Renaissance era and previous of that is being remade now. And it's also a lot of retellings of other stories throughout Disney. So I feel like we are very much in that remake era and I'm not the biggest fan of it. But we'll get into that more later when talking about The Little Mermaid. So now I want to kick off this list. My top 10 most influential films of my childhood. These are the movies that shape me, that influence my imagination, my love of Disney, my humor, or just had some kind of an impact on my life. So kicking off the list at number 10 is The Hunchback of Notre Dame from 1996. It's the story of Quasimodo. He's trying to assert his independence from this vicious government minister while trying to help out his friend and love interest Esmeralda. The influence that The Hunchback had on me as a kid, it was the first film to expose me to what the friend zone is because Quasimodo does not end up with Esmeralda as much as he fights for her and gets her out of a bad situation and becomes the hero of this movie. One of the most unlikely heroes in all of Disney because of 
the perception of him because of the way that he looks, because where he lives, because his friends are gargoyles, and he is seen as a ghoul, as this person who should not see the light of day. That is how I felt as a kid, and that is how I felt in my young adult life trying to get girls to like me. And seeing this movie made me realize that the hero, the good guy, doesn't always end up with the girl. And this was also a heavier plot for a kid's movie adapted from, you know, the old school story of Quasimodo, which is a lot darker. A lot more people die in the original story. But it also showed me that Disney has come a long way as far as the subject matter. Disney movies used to get really dark. It used to be a lot about death and despair and about evil villains that really were just sick and awful for no reason. And I feel like they've gotten away from that a little bit. I feel like Disney movies now are just so focused on making you feel good by the time you leave. But I feel like they used to deal with a lot of real issues that used to matter to kids. And even if we didn't understand them at the time, we actually learned lessons from them that we use later in life. So I feel like we need to test people a little bit more in Disney movies and not just be big, bright and shiny things that just make you feel good. Because that is life. Life is not always going to end happily every time. This movie was also highly influential on my childhood because I remember wanting to collect all of the toys from Burger King. And that was such a big deal back in the day, whether it be Burger King or whether it be McDonald's. Whenever an animated movie came out, I had to have the fast food toys. And as a kid, I was a Burger King kid over a McDonald's kid. I feel like they had the better toys over McDonald's because their movie tie-ins were so much better. And I remember wanting to collect specifically all of the Hunchback of Notre Dame toys because I loved Quasimodo. So that's why I put this movie at number 10. Moving on to number nine, I have Blank Check from 1994. This story is about Preston Waters, who is a 12-year-old kid who ends up getting a check worth a million dollars and then does what you would imagine any 12-year-old with that much money would do with it, buys a bunch of crazy stuff, gets a house, gets every toy you can imagine, buys a big old trash can full of ice cream, and goes on every fun adventure that you can imagine if you had the same amount of money when you were 12 years old. Why this movie was influential to me is because it taught me at an early age that a million dollars really isn't that much money because Preston goes through this cash fairly quickly. And you see what it's like to be rich. But not only that, you see what it's like to have that all taken away from you because that's what happens to Preston. And like me and everybody else who watched this movie back in the 90s, Preston portrayed the average kid, doesn't have a whole lot of friends, has an older brother who doesn't really let him do anything fun. His dad is not the warmest guy, so he just wants to change his life. And after getting a million dollars, he is able to do that. But what he finds is money doesn't really buy you happiness. There's a scene in this movie specifically that resonates with me that I feel now deeply as an adult. He's sitting there in this play boxing ring with these big old boxing gloves. And he's so sad because he really has no one to experience this with. So this movie teaches you a lot about money and also how the people around you change when there is money involved, how everybody wants to be his friend when they think he's a millionaire or at least working for a millionaire, which is what he plays it off to be. But as soon as that money dries up, everybody leaves. So maybe this movie at an early age instilled this kind of anxiety when it comes to money with me and feeling that in a mere second we could all be broke again so what a lesson to teach us as kids 
But also this movie could not be made today because his love interest is the secret FBI agent who is well into her 20s, maybe even 30s, and they have a kiss. He straight up kisses this agent on the lips. That is a felony. I didn't realize it at the time in the 90s as a kid watching this, how weird that was. But still on Disney Plus, they still have the kissing scene in there. So that's a little bit sus. But still, at number nine is Blank Check from 1994. At number eight from 1988, I have Oliver and Company, which is a reimagination of Oliver Twist. But instead of a kid, you have an orphan cat who ends up being taken in by a gang of thieving dogs in New York City. This movie was influential on me because it was the first movie I watched that made it feel like New York City would be a dream. That if I ever made it to New York City, I truly made it in life. And once I finally got to go to New York City in my 20s, I remember it vividly walking onto Times Square for the first time. And I remember having this feeling like somebody took fish hooks and put them on either side of my mouth and just pulled it because this big smile just went across my face and would not leave because I was so excited to be in New York City. And Oliver and Company was the first movie that made me feel like that was the destination for me to go. It also made me love cats. I've always been a cat person ever since I was a kid because growing up in a trailer park, I would always befriend all of the stray cats that came around our trailer. And I learned once you take care of one stray cat in a trailer park, you are now taking care of every stray cat in that trailer park. I remember a rotation of at least five or six stray cats would always come over to our lot and I would feed them. I would play with them. I have old Polaroid pictures of me with just random cats all the time. And I credit that to the opening of Oliver and Company where you have all these cats getting adopted. One by one, you see them all taken out of this cardboard box, but there left at the very end is Oliver, all sad and alone crying with no one else to play with. And then the rain comes and the cardboard box just gets demolished and soaked and dissipates into the sewer. And poor Oliver is just looking for a family. And I thought to myself, I am never going to let a cat have that life. So I took in every cat I saw in that trailer park. And then eventually, once we moved out of the trailer park into a house, we adopted two cats, Dee Dee and Pepper. And they were my best friends all throughout high school. But not only that, even though this movie came out in the Xerox era, which was viewed as not being such a great era, I still find that this animation style is so enticing to me. The movie had a stellar soundtrack with Billy Joel, not only being the voice of Dodger, who is the main dog in this movie, but also doing a lot of the songs. And there are so many jams in Oliver and Company, like, why would I worry? Why would I care? Like, just so many good songs. Probably doesn't even need to go this hard on this soundtrack, but it does. And the movie is also only an hour and 14 minutes, which is also probably due to the fact that it was made in the Xerox era. And they were trying to make movies on the cheaper side. That didn't affect me. I love this movie. So at number eight is Oliver and Company. At number seven from 1994, I have Angels in the Outfield, a story about a kid named Roger, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who really just wants his dad in his life and just wants to be a family. But his deadbeat dad says, well, we can be a family again when the Angels win the pennant, thinking that the Angels would never win the pennant But then real life angels get assigned to the California Angels baseball team and changes their season, takes a laughingstock team all the way to the top. 
And this movie just embodies the 90s where sports fantasies ran rampant. You had air buds flying out of every corner. So the genre was all the rage, but also baseball movies in the 90s were so great. But I still think that Angels in the Outfield is the best to do it. This movie was influential on me because growing up as a kid who didn't have a whole lot, I identified a lot with Roger and JP from when this movie first started. And they are hiding out in this tree to be able to watch a baseball game for free. But it also taught me at an early age that not everybody comes from the same background when it comes to family. It taught me about the foster care system. You have these two kids living with their foster mom, Maggie. And this was the first time I really got a glimpse into what that kind of life was like. So then every time I encountered someone else in my life, who was in or had been in foster care, it wasn't foreign to me. So at number seven is Angels in the Outfield. At number six, I have A Bug's Life from 1998. It is the story of a misfit ant who goes out on a mission to find some warriors to stop the greedy grasshoppers. What this movie taught me as a kid is that it's okay to be different. And those people who are different are going to be the ones to go on and change the world because that is what Flick experiences in A Bug's Life. He is trying to adapt and use technology to make their life better. And he doesn't have it down completely right, but it's his innovation and want to make their lives better and more advanced that leads to them being successful, that leads to them being able to take out the grasshoppers and leads to them being able to provide for themselves. And I think this is a movie we could even learn from today with, you know, AI becoming a thing that everybody's talking about and everybody being afraid about. While yes, there are some dangers that seem to come with AI, but I think if used correctly, much like it did for Flick, it could change our lives for the better. We just gotta know how to use it and not be so afraid about everything all the time when it changes how we normally do things. So I just want to go on the record. I, for one, welcome AI when they completely take over all of our lives and you just have a robot doing this podcast for you. But at number six, I have A Bug's Life. Getting into my top five, I have at number five, Heavyweights from 1995. A lot of fives in that. But this movie is about overweight kids who go to a camp with the promise of losing weight. And it's viewed as a positive thing. It's run by this really great couple who takes in these kids and does what's best for them. So tries to make it fun without the emphasis being on just them there to lose weight. That quickly changes when they are no longer the owners of the camp. And instead, it's this Tony Perkins who wants to make this camp a total living nightmare for them in order to be able to sell an infomercial. And why this movie was influential on me is because for the first time in a Disney movie or really any other movie, I saw kids that looked like me. Growing up my entire life, I was overweight. As a kid, my earliest memories are just me being overweight and not looking like all the other kids and all of the struggles that come along with that from trying to find clothes that fit as a kid, from being teased at in school, from not wanting to eat certain foods that other kids are enjoying because I feel like everybody is looking at me while I eat them. And it was just my biggest insecurity and living inside that body for so many years. I just never really felt comfortable in my own skin. But then you have this movie Heavyweights that completely flips the script and suddenly all the overweight kids like me are the cool kids because they are all amongst themselves and nobody feels insecure. And in an era in the 90s where I felt like it was only 
good looking kids that could also be in movies like this. And this was the first time where I just thought, hey, I could be in a Disney movie someday. But this movie was also highly influential on my humor because if you actually look at the script for Heavyweights, it is really well written. There's some really great jokes in there. Some that probably went over my head as a kid. So even rewatching this movie as an adult, I can still enjoy it and still laugh at it. So at number five, I have Heavyweights. At number four, I have the OG Pixar movie from 1995, Toy Story. This movie was probably the biggest influence on my imagination, and it came at my height of love of toys. And I know I'm biased in saying this because I was born in the 90s, grew up in the 90s, but 90s toys were the best. And as I was saying earlier, I always loved the toys that came from a movie tie-in. And now you had a movie that was about toys, so I feel like Toy Story also had the best toys, and it was my dream as a kid to have my very own Buzz Lightyear. I never got it, because I couldn't afford it, but man, how badly I wanted a Buzz Lightyear. I think maybe I had the fast food version of Buzz Lightyear, but I just wanted that big, true-to-size Buzz Lightyear that Andy had in this movie. And the other influence that this movie had early on was... It became the first animated movie that was beloved by everybody. So it feels like all the other Disney movies were always just made directly for kids. But now with Toy Story, you had a movie that kids loved, but it could also be enjoyed by adults because I remember my entire family loved this movie. My brother and sister are seven to nine years older than me. They loved Toy Story when it came out in the 90s, but also my mom, who probably hated all the animated movies I watched. She also loved and still loves Toy Story. And I feel like this was the start of Pixar, but also the start of animated franchises, which we had never really seen before in Disney because they rarely made sequels. And when they did make sequels, they were always straight to video sequels. So, you know, Aladdin, like the second part was just straight VHS. Lion King, they had a part two, but it was straight VHS. Now with Toy Story, the sequels were also major film releases. So for that reason, I have Toy Story at number four. At number three, from 2002, I have Lilo and Stitch. This came at a point in my life where I needed a story about a misfit like Stitch. In 2002, I was 11 years old and much like Experiment 626, aka Stitch, I felt like an alien. And what Lilo and Stitch brought to the table was the story about this lovable, mischievous creature who was so misunderstood didn't have a family or home to call his own and ends up on earth in Hawaii and through all the craziness that is going on in his brain that only comes out through emotions of rage and destruction, he is able to find a friend in Lilo who adopts him, takes him in, and much like him is also a misfit herself. She doesn't have any friends at school. Her parents are no longer alive and she is living with their sister who now has to be a mother figure and that has been a strain on their relationship. They can't just be sisters anymore because she has to be now her mom. So coming from similar backgrounds, they are able to come together and be friends, even though it's rough. And that is what I love about Lilo and Stitch. It highlights, yes, the importance of love, but also understanding and forgiveness, family, acceptance, and finding one's place in the world. It also showed me as a kid that family doesn't have to look a specific way. Not everybody's family is going to be mom, dad, 
brothers and sisters. It doesn't have to look textbook like it does in every other Disney movie. And that point is best represented in this movie where Stitch has his most emotional moment out of the entire film. This is my family. I found it all on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. I've also seen the movie so much that I am now able to do that impression. So it's influenced my life and someday I would love to get into voice acting. So at number three is Lilo and Stitch. At number two, I have The Lion King from 1994. The movie that emotionally wrecked me as a kid. This movie was highly influential on all of our lives, teaching us about death. But the way that it was handled in The Lion King was probably the best that Disney could do it. Because unlike in Bambi, there was actually a lesson to be told here. Bambi was just brutal and violent for no reason. There was no reason for Bambi's mom to be killed in that movie. And it's just so jarring and unexpected that it really provides no lesson other than someday the people you love can just be easily taken away from you for no reason. Through the entire story of Simba and him losing his father, you learn about how to cope with death. But this movie also made me fall in love with the hand-drawn animated style. And if it wouldn't have been for The Lion King in 94, the Renaissance era wouldn't have had that Real defining factor. This is the defining movie of the golden age. And it showed that combined with that animation and combined with the storytelling in this movie, that an animated movie can have a lot of depth. I feel like this was the movie that really made it feel like Disney movies were not just cartoons, but real animated stories. So at number two, I have The Lion King. But at number one, my most influential Disney film of my childhood goes to a movie from 1995 called A Goofy Movie. The chokehold that this movie had on my childhood is unmatched. I watched this movie more and more than any other Disney movie because I just loved the story. And I think at the time when this movie came out in 95, I was four years old and I just thought it was a fun, different movie. I loved the soundtrack. And up to this point, I had never really seen Goofy on this big of a stage in a full theatrical release, which this movie was supposed to go straight to video. So even the fact that this movie was released on this scale is kind of like an underdog story. So when I first watched it, I just thought it was funny. I thought it was hilarious. I love the animation style. It really encompasses everything about the 90s, from the fashion, from the music, from the humor. And the thing I appreciated as I revisited this movie more and more throughout my childhood and even now as an adult, I feel like it is the perfect coming-of-age story from Disney. It's about Max, who is just a kid trying to be cool trying to fit in trying to get the girl and I think we could all probably relate to that growing up just trying to find your place and that was something I really identified with growing up that I always felt like the odd kid I felt like I didn't have a lot of friends and if people just gave me a chance to see how cool I really was or at least that I thought I was that I would be the most popular kid in school much like Max So you have that aspect of the coming-of-age story. But I think at the core of this movie, it's about the relationship with your parents. In this case, it is the story of father and son. Where really the message behind this movie all comes down to its tagline. It's hard to be cool when your dad is goofy. Because you have Goofy 
just trying to form a relationship with his teenage son when all he wants to do is listen to music, hang out in his room and hang out with his friends. He feels like he is losing his son. So his idea is to go on this big fishing trip, much like they did when he was younger, and gain back the little Max, his little boy, his little pride and joy. So that was a big influence on me. But even above that, I think it comes back to the humor And this was the first movie that really made me love and respect movie quotes. This film has so many memorable lines that I still quote to this day. It also has two of my favorite Disney songs of all time, Eye to Eye and Stand Out, from the greatest fictional pop star of all time, Powerline. And if there was only one movie from this list I could show my future kids, it would be this one. So my number one most influential film from Disney of my childhood is a Goofy movie. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Well, 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 if it isn't another Disney live action remake, I believe to my core that Disney live action remakes are a waste of time. And going into this movie, I did not want to like it. I was coming off of being burned by Pinocchio, Peter Pan, and Wendy. Even, I'll go back further, Mulan. All these movies were a waste of my time because they were all movies that I loved as a kid that we all loved as kids. And it just felt like a cash grab to me. Hey, let's just remake those same movies, throw in some live action, throw in some cheap visual effects, and call it a remake. But what I feel like, it takes the magic out of what makes those movies great. And if I were watching those movies for the very first time as a kid, I don't feel like you would be as inspired. So they dug back into the archive, found the movie that everybody loves, The Little Mermaid. And The Little Mermaid, to me isn't one of my favorites. In the segment earlier where I did my top 10 influential films from Disney, I didn't put Little Mermaid on there. It didn't really speak to me as a kid. I also didn't put Aladdin on there. Those movies were two greats that a lot of people enjoyed. There just wasn't anything about their story that resonated with me. So going into this one, I decided not to rewatch The Little Mermaid because I made that mistake before going into a remake. I want to watch that and then judge it based on the original movie, But they just end up making the exact same movie. And I didn't want to watch the same movie twice when it's not my favorite movie. So that is where I'm coming at you 
with this review. I did not want to like this movie, but I think it's hard to deny the magic of The Little Mermaid because at its core, it's a really good story. And going into this, I do enjoy the soundtrack. Have some jams on there. And I feel like there are things in this movie that benefited from live action, but also that hurt it. But when you outweigh the two, there were a lot more benefits. But let's get into what we all know that this movie is about. It follows the original story, pretty much the entire thing. You got a young mermaid named Ariel. She is the youngest daughter of King Triton. She is infatuated with everything that's going on above her outside of the ocean and obsessed with humans. And King Triton is trying to get her to stop talking about humans, stop exploring these waters, and just leave them alone. But all she wants to do is be a part of their world, go up there and experience what it's like to be outside of the ocean. So she makes a deal with the evil Ursula, who takes away her voice, gives her legs, and allows her to go find this Prince Eric, who she had rescued early on in the movie. But of course, because it's a Disney movie, they have to throw in the twist there. She only has three days to get a kiss from Prince Eric, and it has to come from true love, Otherwise, she'll turn right back into a mermaid and then be the sole property of Ursula. Now, the thing I really wanted to judge this movie on was the look of it. I just watched Peter Pan and Wendy, and that movie looked Disney Plus quality. It looked like a bunch of cheap visual effects. So I wanted to feel inside this movie and get the feeling that, okay, this actually deserves the big screen and the underwater world was pretty magical, but I think what really won me over visually was everything that happened at sea on the ships. I thought that looked really great. It reminded me of Pirates of the Caribbean. So I thought that was a great opening sequence whenever the boat catches on fire and Ariel has to say Prince Eric. I was into that. It gave me that feeling of excitement. Now, where the live action really hurt this movie was with all the sea creatures. And Sebastian, even though he was funny, David Diggs, did a really great job at voicing that character. There was just so much disconnect. So even though the voice acting was pretty good, it just felt like I was listening to a track and trying to associate it with this character. Flounder was all out terrifying. He looked like something from my nightmare. And every time that Flounder came on screen, he looked like he was in pain to me. With his eyes, Flounder was telling me, every moment I live is agony, please kill me. That is the visual I had while looking at Flounder. So I feel like they almost should have gone full Roger Rabbit and just did a 2D animation on Flounder and on Sebastian. And the big thing about Disney is the tie-in with merchandise. Essentially, every Disney movie is just a commercial to get you to go to Disney World, Disneyland, to get you to buy all the merch that goes along with a movie. If I was a kid going into watching this version of The Little Mermaid, I would only want things with Ariel. I wouldn't want anything with Flounder or Sebastian because it's not really visually appealing. I don't want a Flounder notebook. So if anything, it's going to make Haley Bailey and the image of her as Ariel be the biggest takeaway from this movie. And I think that is great. But all the other characters just fall completely flat to the point where it is pretty distracting. And forgive me. I know I messed up her name again. It's Hallie Bailey, but I get it so confused with Halle Berry. It'd be like if there was another A-list actor named Brent Pitt, I would get those two confused too. Sorry. The other thing that live action made better in this movie was the soundtrack. It really brought all the songs to life, being able to see the characters singing it loud, seeing it come out of their mouth. 
that added a whole other level to it that I felt like the songs in this version resonated with me a little bit more. Although I do wonder what everybody else does when this one character just goes and starts singing and doesn't stop. Do they all just like float there and be like, all right, she's going to keep singing. She's going to keep going. And I also realized how much Sebastian is trying to brainwash Ariel with Under the Sea. And I did pick up on a lot more themes now. I think watching this movie as an adult, you see that he is just trying to keep her in the sea, trying to get her to buy into the fact that you have everything you need here. You don't need to go exploring. You don't need to go experience everything in the world. Stay at home or you belong. And as I get older, I do grasp on to these themes a little bit more. I think it probably would have resonated with me more if I had kids. And I can kind of see the shift that more people are probably having going to see this movie the movie we remember as a kid, you probably identified with Ariel of wanting to go and find your prince and wanting to go against what your parents say to chase the things in life that you want, chase love, chase new adventures. It's kind of like what a teenager would experience when they're wanting to go to college. As kids, we saw that perspective. And now as the ones taking our kids now as adults and getting them to watch this movie, we kind of see it from King Triton's side. Hey, I don't want my kids to go meet up with some random dude she just saved and go hang out with the humans and put herself in danger. So it's like almost going full circle and going from one character's perspective to another character's perspective. But I think who really stole the show in this movie was Melissa McCarthy as Ursula. Perfectly cast, and she played the character so well. And I feel like in live action, you really get that grasp of the evilness of Ursula through these new visuals. I love the look of her tentacles and her entire world every time she was on screen. That was my favorite moments. They could probably do a spinoff movie just following the life of Ursula. Think Joker, but Disney, because she really did a great job at making this movie exciting and making it feel different. And I always just love the dark side of old Disney stories. And I feel like her as Ursula really drove this movie home. I also love Javier Bardem as King Triton. Anton Sugar himself from No Country for Old Men. Ever since that movie, he kind of has a lifetime pass for me that I will watch anything he does. But he is really great in a regal king role. So I thought he did a really great job as Ariel's dad. When it came to Prince Eric, I think there was a lot to be desired. He wasn't my Prince Eric. He kind of looked like an AI-generated Ryan Gosling. Part of me had to remember that this is a movie made for kids because I did question their chemistry a little bit. But I realized that you can't really make it full on love story, show all these things because it's kids watching it. So I felt like their acting was a little bit limited, but it's because it is a remake of a Disney movie and you have to be very kid friendly. So that would have been an entirely different movie that I wanted, apparently. That's probably The Little Mermaid that you would buy in the alley, and it's on like an old burn DVD. So that's an entirely different movie that I wanted. I had to get back into reality and think, oh, wait, no, this is for kids. But what this movie ended up doing, it did make me buy in to the Disney magic again. I think if a kid watched this movie now, they're definitely going to enjoy it. Parents are going to enjoy it. But I do have to compare it to the original because I don't think if you started with this movie, it would create that same lasting fandom. I think you'll probably forget about this movie in six months. Another year, you're not really going to want to revisit it. It's cool now, 
But it's not going to have the same kind of longevity as a movie from the 80s. So I think the Disney magic still lies in the animation. But they proved to me that they can make a good adaptation and add a little value and not just feel like they're going through all the motions, checking all the boxes and just making exactly what exists on animation without making it better. You got to make it better. Otherwise, there's no reason to do this. Pinocchio, they didn't make it better. Peter Pan and Wendy, they didn't make it better. Mulan, they really ruined that story. So they did, in turn, make some things better, but also didn't really capture the essence of the characters. So I don't think it'll have the same lasting impression. So for me, a Disney remake has a ceiling of about a four. The Lion King got that. Aladdin got that. Even though Cruella wasn't a true remake, I think that was a great live action reimagination and origin story. So they could probably do a similar movie like Cruella with Ursula. It was so hard for me to fully buy into it because of Flounder and Sebastian. And I didn't want it to, but they are such a big part of the movie and a big part of the story that I really couldn't look past that. So it just made the movie less enjoyable for me. So for The Little Mermaid, I give it 3.5 out of 5 forks. The next Disney live action movies we have to look forward to, we have Snow White coming out on March 22nd, 2024, and then Mufasa the Lion King also in 2024 on July 5th, which will be the prequel to the live action version from 2019. Don't mess with my Lion King anymore. Just just don't mess it up. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It's time to head down to Movie Mike's Trailer Park. If I have to hear one more person complain about long movies. I just might lose it. I just might quit this podcast. I feel like movies have historically been long. I don't feel like it's out of the norm for a movie to have a two and a half, a three hour runtime. If you look back on some of the greatest movies ever made that have long runtimes, we never question it. Look at movies like The Godfather, Saving Private Ryan, both three hours. The Green Mile, three hours and nine minutes. Titanic, one of the greatest movies ever made, is three hours and 14 minutes. 
No one really complains about Titanic being that long. Endgame is three hours. I just rewatched that movie for like the 10th time last weekend because I was feeling like I needed a little Avengers in my life. I love that that movie is three hours because I get to live in it longer. Gone with the Wind from 1939 is three hours and 42 minutes. So this is nothing new. I just feel like long movies get a lot of attention whenever they come out because it's something for people to be divided on and it's something for people to complain about. I, for one, welcome it. I would watch a five-hour director's cut of a movie that warranted it. Why am I bringing this up? Because Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out on October 6th and it is three hours and 26 minutes. That is a long movie, but it is from director Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest filmmakers of our lifetime. This is what he does. Big dramas, crime epics are his specialty. And I feel like he is a director that I have no worry going into a movie knowing that it is three plus hours. I am in for it. I will watch every single minute and be dialed into a Martin Scorsese movie because he has proven to me time and time again that he can do it and he can do it well. Look at movies like The Wolf of Wall Street that has a long runtime, The Irishman on Netflix, which is over three hours. I have no doubt in my mind that this movie will warrant the three hour runtime. So so a big long runtime from him doesn't intimidate me. So I'll get into what this movie is actually about. Before I do, here is just a little bit of the Killers of the Flower Moon trailer. The Osage took their name from Missouri and Osage Rivers. Move, said the great white father. There are many, so many hungry wolves. Can you find the wolves in this picture? I just love the way that Leonardo DiCaprio is speaking in this trailer, the way that he looks it is already being described at his best role ever, which is saying a lot because he has done so many great movies throughout his career. But what Killers of the Flower Moon is about, it's based on the best-selling book, which is set in the 1920s in Oklahoma, and it depicts the serial murder of members of the oil-wealthy Osage Nation and a string of brutal crimes that came to be known as the Reign of Terror. What I love about this trailer is it feels very ominous and doesn't give away too much about where they're going to take this story. I think that is truly what a trailer is supposed to do. It's not supposed to tell you the entire story from start to finish. That is the signs of a bad movie. It's supposed to entice you, generate your curiosity while giving you the tone of the movie and giving you that excited feeling. I feel like this trailer does it perfectly. What you hear in this trailer is Leonardo DiCaprio's character named Ernest, who is reading aloud to himself from a children's book. It is from the advice of his uncle, William, who is played by Robert De Niro in this movie. And he thinks reading this book may help him get acclimated to this new town. The visuals in this movie give me vibes of the movie There Will Be Blood. It looks like a beautifully made movie that tells a dark story about greed and murder, which are two themes that Martin Scorsese does really well. And Apple movies just look spectacular. I feel like if there's one thing that Apple TV Plus does so well is creating just very beautiful content with rich colors, a lot of great cinematography. And even though it is a streaming service, I always feel like all of their projects deserve to be seen on a big screen with big sound. So this movie is going to theaters in October, 
before it is going to streaming. So this is relatively new for Apple. I think this is easily them trying to say, we are here to be taken seriously. We saw that with their movie Coda winning an Oscar. And now I feel like this is definitely teeing them up to be nominated for more Oscars. And this is based on me just watching the trailer. You just have Scorsese, you have Leonardo DiCaprio, you have Robert De Niro, who have historically done some of the best dramas in film throughout their career working together. So it just has Oscar written all over it. So even though I myself am not afraid of a long runtime, I welcome the longer movies. I understand that it feels daunting when looking at the runtime of anything, whether it be a podcast, whether it be a song, just something in your mind makes you not want to watch something when it seems like it's going to take you a long time and take a good chunk of your day. So I love the fact that this movie is coming out in theaters first. So the people who want to experience that way, like myself, can go and have that experience. And I think for a director like Martin Scorsese, he believes that his movie should be seen in that way. And I say this defending him, even though I kind of have beef with him, too, because he always just makes fun of superhero movies. He says they are not cinema. And I feel like he alienates a lot of people who love superhero movies and also love his films, too. We are not a completely different audience. I can enjoy Goodfellas as much as I can enjoy Spider-Man or Guardians of the Galaxy. But I feel like with him saying that he wants me to feel bad for also enjoying superhero movies. If I was him or any director that maybe gets discouraged about filmmaking when it seems like superhero movies are the only ones generating income, I would welcome it. Martin Scorsese, I challenge you, let your last film ever to be a superhero epic drama crime movie. I'm talking The Departed, but everybody has superpowers. But again, Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out in select theaters on Friday, October 6th, and then in theaters everywhere on October 20th. There's still not a confirmed date on when it will stream on Apple TV+, Plus, but I assume it'll probably be that 40-day run in theaters. So you'll probably be able to watch it at home late November, early December. And that was this week's edition of Movie Minds Trailer Park. And that's going to do it for another episode here of the podcast. But before I go, I got to give my listener shout out, which I do every single week. Somebody who sends me an email, moviemikeD at gmail.com, tweets me at Mike D Show or comments over on my Instagram. And this week's listener shout out comes to you from my Instagram comments. It is from Kayla who commented on my Fast X review and said, watch Fast X last night and totally agree with your review. Fast action entertainment the whole way through. Wouldn't be a Fast and the Furious film without some familia cheesiness. And Jason Momoa was an awesome addition. So thank you, Kayla, for also enjoying and appreciating my love of the Fast X movies. After reading all the comments and how everybody is so split on Fast movies, I have just determined that it's going to be a genre that I love that other people will just continue to hate. So I am looking forward to the next one and a spinoff they make from Fast and the Furious. I am here for it. So thank you for listening. Hope you have a great rest of your week. And until next time, go out and watch good movies and I will talk to you later.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Com.com slash compatibility.